Emilio Diaz Barroso. I, I really enjoyed talking to Emilio. I just, just saying his name. I, I, I take a, a deep breath. Um, successful uh, business person, uh, wonderful growing up in, in Mexico City. He was in a very, very affluent, rich family, and it just created a whole kind of set of circumstances for him that is, that's fascinating. His parents sent him to the Northeast of the U.S. Um, boarding school in New Hampshire, then to Harvard, and um, many, many businesses successful um, in media, in finance, and economics and technology, um, had, had this epiphany and, uh, many of which, but, uh, he decides to write a book, but his journey to get there, uh, there's a balloon that's losing air and he, he, I don't want to do it any disservice, but you're really going to enjoy, you know, his many metaphors as to, um, you know, self-reflection and, a course correction. And uh, again, his book, The Mystery of You, really, really ties it uh, very well all together. And, um, you know, phrases. There's this one we talk about, certainly we talk about discipline, but there's this one phrase, a uh, question that he was asked uh, that has just floored me ever since I learned about it. We talk about it, but it has to, to do with how certain you are with, with ideals and, but just a wonderful conversation with Emilio. You're really going to enjoy it. You're going to self-reflect. Um, I, I know you're going to enjoy it. I certainly did. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Joey Pins. People ask me, how did I lose 130 pounds? The quick answer is always discipline. I started my business, wasn't paying attention to my health, was eating too much, you know, drinking too much sweets. My daughter was born. Next thing I know, I'm pre-diabetic, I have hypertension. I knew something had to change. Discipline. I, like many of you, have faced many challenges in your career, in your family, in your life, in your faith. How did you attack them? How did you approach them? How did you solve them, hopefully? It all had to have some degree of discipline. I'm also asked, how did you found and start a tech business that lasted over 25 years? Discipline. I was committed to it, enjoyed technology, didn't enjoy some aspects of it, but knew it was necessary. Discipline. Our podcast mission, how do we use discipline to better ourselves and society? Join me, please, as I talk to interesting people and discuss how they use discipline in their family and their passion and their careers and how it helped them. Our podcast vision, growth through learning from others. Joey Pins Discipline Conversations. It'll be light and serious. Join us, please. Thank you for consideration. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. You're now dedicated to alleviating suffering. I mean, that is an incredible, you know, uh, goal task. Tell me how it's going. <laughs> Great question. You know, moment to moment. And mm. I notice how when I find myself thinking that someone else needs fixing, it tends to be a good um time to do some self-reflection.
mm. and, and notice ultimately what parts of me are, are requiring greater attention, usually some level of self-forgiveness or compassion. Yeah. Yeah, you, you cite great examples where you talk about this, where you, you talk about poachers or sex traffickers or, you know, people who would just are despicable, some would say. And, you know, someone taught you or you just realized, well, I have a lot to look at, too. You know, uh, I think you were talking to a um, an associate, a colleague, and, and they said, what would you do to that? And they said, well, I'll just try to find them other employment or something. Yeah. Or talk about Jane, the poachers. Jane Goodall. So that oh, yeah. Jane Goodall, yes. Oh, Jane Goodall, of course she did. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. pacifist. Yeah, and I, I enjoy the story of kind of how you came to this moment. You, you know, incredible childhood in Mexico, affluent family, uh, great education, uh, tremendous here in Mexico and in the states, of course, at Harvard. And you, you came to this epiphany where you draw the analogy of a balloon losing air. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of how my most of my life felt like like it, like I was this balloon and all of the things that I valued at any particular moment whether it was early on maybe getting good grades then eventually getting the girl or getting the car or getting the right. you know the good career and the you know whatever it was and eventually in in this self growth journey or the spiritual journey sort of these spiritual insights or realizations those were all different versions of me blowing air into this balloon and the size of this balloon at any given moment defined how good I felt about myself. And if my balloon was large compared to my own expectations or compared to someone else's balloon, then I felt like I was doing great and I was winning. But this balloon always had a little pinprick hole in it that was always in constant deflation. And so it was a race to beat that deflationary element and, uh, and inflate as quickly as I could. And that was exhausting. Mm. And what, what ended up happening and what I referenced in the book is that at some point, it felt like that little hole that was pinprick in size, at one point through just a lot of time in silence and stillness, it became this big gash. And this container that I had used to accumulate uh, kind of lost its objectivity, its concreteness, solidity. Hmm. That was very disorienting. Another analogy you you talk about it's kind of similar where the stick figure has like a bag of poop behind itself and a carrot and a stick in front of itself and it's chasing this while it still has that behind it's this the kind of rat race. Yeah, it's it's a Zen koan which I love Zen. It's got its limitations, but the Zen tradition uh, is very cryptic and which is great because it tends to not give you answers. It. It puts forth uh, questions or invitations. And koans are, are these images that tend to just elicit that contemplation. And one of them is what you're referring to, which is this this figure with this carrot or prize and then bag of poop in the back. And it really is representative, at least of how I grew up, which was must get there in order to be okay and must avoid whatever that is that I consider undesirable to be okay. And as we all know, we, we get a lot of carrots and we get smacked by poop many times during our lifetimes. And yet here we are figuring things out. So it's remarkable that so much of our energy and attention day to day is oriented around getting there and outrunning this. Hmm. 
and and the outrunning part could be you know superficial or pretty deep and i think the more i sat with it the more i realized some of the things i was running away from were things like feeling not good enough you know, like i if i produced if i created value if i was seen as special and important and successful then i would feel better about myself and i would avoid this dragon that was always in the background right which was oh no you're not as good as that person or you'll never be sort of you know as successful as so and so and look at them over there they're definitely more successful than you were you know whatever it was right at different ages it was different things yeah it's exhausting you- it can be certainly, you know, thinking about that, Emilio, perhaps that was, you know, the, that day's version of a meme. Hmm. That is and very interesting. Yeah, totally. Totally. It gives me a whole reframe on memes now. Yeah. Memes are not new. They've been around for a long time. <laughs> That's right. They probably started as hieroglyphics or something. That's right. Right. Yeah. Just simple ways of conveying a message in a picture. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's artful, right? Uh, to be able to to convey convey a lot in a little in a little image. In our society of, of you know immediate gratification because of social media, whatever the reason may be, you know, meme often says a lot, you know, in a quick little, and that that image that you talk about right there certainly, I, I bet you, somebody at this point has converted it into a modern day meme and you know done something with it. Yeah, I, I haven't come across it. I'd love to see it. Because it really, and I think psychologists speak of uh, something called, I think, hedonic adaptation, which is this premise that we're on a on a treadmill, and and we're trying to get to happiness, but we're on this treadmill, mm-hmm. and we must always uh, be running. And it's and it's interesting because we, when I reflected on this, you know, we're so trained to go to the pursuit of happiness, right? It's this inalienable, inalienable right. And, but we're not trained to be happy, right? We're trained to go for things, but not necessarily trained to enjoy them. And I know certainly for my, in my experience and some of the people that I mentor that once we get to wherever we think is going to be great, it doesn't take long for us to start running again, right? Mm-hmm. For us to sort of, get over that nice feeling quickly and say, okay, yeah, but what's the next thing? Because the next thing is really going to be everlasting. And, you know, it's nice, That's nice carrot. solution. That's the carrot. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's the golden yeah. carrot sometimes. All too often, you know, I, I started, I know you, you worked a lot in the tech industry. Your first chapter is the operating system. We'll get to that in a moment. But, uh, and I, you know, we would get big deals. We would be get big contracts. And I said, yeah, as soon as I get this, boy, that's going to be it. But as soon as you get the signature, it's like, okay, now we throw it over wall. Now we got to do this work. And it's not until recently where I learned to kind of, Hey, let's celebrate. Let's be in the moment. Let's celebrate this for, for a bit. And then we can move on just because we're such goal, you know, next goal, next goal, make it bigger. This goal didn't work. Just go forward. But again, it's similar. I mean, you also talk about the Pac-Man mentality. Is that similar as well? Seems to be right that that we're that yeah. is this gobbling this this give me more give me more give me more give me more. I think the the core misunderstanding is that we're operating from this sense of of incompleteness. Right? So yeah. when we operate from a sense of incompleteness or brokenness, then we're we're always looking for things to fill that up. 
and to sort of make us feel better about ourselves. And the, the stopping that you're inviting is scary. It was certainly scary for me. It's like, what do you mean stop? What do you mean celebrate? I, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm on a mission here and I need to get over there. I often didn't even know where over there was. I just need, knew that I needed to get somewhere. And, uh, and somehow the idea of slowing down felt um, complacent and felt irresponsible. Like I was wasting time, wasting my life. Hmm. Yeah. I wonder, you know, I have friends in England and they tell me what, we, what we've kind of noticed that one of the biggest differences just between the kind of culture and population between the U.S. here and maybe it's different in Mexico, you could tell me, but uh, and, uh, in England, if somebody here in the U.S. is very successful, you know, people generally say, Wow, I'm going to be like him or her. I'm I'm going to get there. I'm going to. Whereas in England, it's it's a bit of a different mentality where, you know, oh that person's successful. I'm going to go get him. I'm going to go. You know, I'm going to go and you know hurt him. You know, I'm going to go and you know mock and you know. So it's just a very different frame. I I wonder why that is. It's just a very different mentality. Have you ever heard of this uh, dynamic? I, I've heard of it in different contexts. I didn't didn't know that England had had this this operating. It, it it makes sense in a zero sum game, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes sense when we think that someone else's success is is sort of a, and I think a lot of the grading in certain colleges, when it's curve based grading, promotes that, right? It's like there's only mm-hmm. so many A's that are going to be offered. So if someone gets an A, then that's that takes it away from you. And, and I think in the pragmatic, very functional utilitarian perspective that we are trained, I was trained as an economist, it is this view of limited resources, right? Unlimited, unlimited demand for very limited supply. Mm. And then, so then when someone else has something, it, it, it I guess it, it could be then understood that I must knock them down if I want to be mm. in that. There's only one, one throne, <laughs> whatever your current version of the throne is, but I see it in Mexico play out in in different ways. There's certainly a lot of, um, I don't know if jealousy is the right word, but comparison around people that are at the top. And it's, it's mm-hmm. you know, we, and I see it in the U.S. as well, right? We, we are bigger targets the more uh, we are out there and the more successful we are and successful in the terms of you know, at least what's societally uh, acceptable or understood. But but you're right. I don't I don't necessarily think that people certainly when I think of all the people that I mentor, they don't think that their place is already taken by someone else, and I don't think they equate their success with someone else's failure. I do think that it's another strategy of the ego to feel less bad about ourselves, right? Because if if someone is successful, then then it gives fuel to that part of us that feels less than. Very interesting. Your your childhood fascinates me too. Uh, and I'm sorry, we'll get we'll get to your book in in a moment, the mystery of life. But affluent family, Mexico City. You say like point zero 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 one. You know, like uh, very. You know, you were surrounded by yachts. You tell this one story about your in the yacht, and like a bigger one passes by, and there's jealous. You know, and um, you were very entrepreneurial. Your parents had an odd dynamic because they actually divorced but didn't tell you and your siblings and uh can you just talk what what was that like 
uh, you were educated and then came here. I mean, it's just fascinating. What was that dynamic like? It was so confusing, right? Because we, mm. to your point, we were, I was surrounded by a lot of money, a lot of power, a lot of toys, a lot of everything, a lot of what mm. anybody would think, well, once I have all of that, then my life will feel more complete. Right. And then I will feel like I don't need to be running as much and I can enjoy. And, and I, looking back, it was obvious, but people were experiencing this sense of inner lack in the sort of, even though there was so much outer abundance and it didn't stop me. I, I ran and I, you know, early on, I think there's, and it's important to draw the distinction, right? Because there is the entrepreneurial quality that I had since mm-hmm. middle school and high school, where I was just doing things and starting businesses and things which is just really fun. And there's there's something mm-hmm. fun about making money and creating and selling and making. And, and that's just something I've always enjoyed. Right. And at some point, the other programming kicks in, which is, and I think for me, it kicked in when I started. It mostly kicked in around the 99-2000 timeframe when the dot-com, 99, when the dot-com boom was in full swing. And I would look around and see friends of mine having IPOs or raising a bunch of money and their stock tickers going, and I'd be like, I'm so behind. I'm so behind. I must catch up. And, and I think that's when it really got heightened. Um, mm-hmm. But my, my upbringing was one where I, I was very invested in outrunning that big shadow of my family, not shadow in the negative sense, just this, this, my family had set the bar pretty high. And I wanted to outrun and beat that. Mm. And and I was confused also because the way I perceived them and the people that were running those businesses or my father or my uncle, they had a pretty authoritarian way of running businesses. And my nature was a lot softer. So I, I thought, well, if I'm if I'm going to be successful... I'm going to be a bit more, I'm going to need to be a little more of a, you know, of a hard guy. And I need to be able mm. to sort of, just, I need to earn respect through fear, which is what I had been modeled. Mm. So that was a whole new orientation of like, I, I could I have both? And, and I, for a while, I didn't have a lot of uh, people or, uh, or models that I could point to to say, oh yeah, that, that individual seems to be doing things from a, from a certain perspective and still seems to be good at what they do. Took me a while to unravel that one. Yeah. Yeah. It it fascinates me, but it made you the person you are today. You you also talk about, you know, you did well in school academically, but then when you, you know, when you got to Harvard, it was very different. Now there's so many smart people around. It's just a very different dynamic. And plus you're in the Northeast in Boston, just the weather alone must've been a shock for Mexico city. Oh yeah, but I had been shocked before because I went to boarding school in New Hampshire when I was eleven That's years right. old. Oh. oh, that was so rough. <laughs> so, ah, so I live in New Haven. You do? Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You probably played Choate in all your sports, right? Uh-huh. Choate Rosemary yeah, Hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. That's right in my town. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. So, what was it like coming coming to the Northeast and, and going to Harvard and going to boarding school? Well, there were there were different different in nature the the boarding school one was a real shock my parents sold it to me i didn't speak any english and they uh and i wanted to go to the america or they wanted me to go to the american school in mexico city um but i was already in starting seventh grade 
I didn't speak the language. So they figured, well, let's send them somewhere in the States, really far away, where's the least amount of Spanish speaking people in that corner. And, uh, and I went there in the summer and I was like, oh, well, this is, this is pleasant. You know, I could, it was, it was like you a mean, summer, yeah, you know, sunny okay. and there's lots of sure. sports. It was co-ed. I was like, oh, this is nice. Yeah. And then come September, it was, uh, as you know, New Hampshire can get, even in September, yeah. very rough. Yeah. And uh, yes. so that was shocking. And I was, I was 11. I was, I was young for, mm. very young for my age uh, or for my grade. And um, so I was the youngest person in the school. I, based on a lot of childhood trauma, I, would, I was still sometimes peeing my bed at 11, which is really late. But but doing that in boarding school without obviously any means of communication, no cell phones except like a public payphone somewhere. So it was it was very hardening, but it was incredibly empowering because for the first time I got really good grades, at like the top of the of the school, and for the first time ever I couldn't justify those grades based on my family's involvement. Because my family was so prominent in Mexico that every time I got something, any kind of award, any, I would always dismiss it as, yeah, but, and there were things that I definitely got because of my family. I was Peter Pan in the school play when I was a terrible actor. And it was only because my family was providing all of the, you know, the, the setup and the cameras. But this was the first time I was like, oh, I can actually accomplish things on my own. And it really dawned. Fast forward to Harvard. I must have forgotten that because <laughs> I go to Harvard and it's very humbling because for a while I had not had to effort, even though I went to a really good college in Mexico, I started my college in Mexico city. I didn't have to effort much to get A's and to be at the top of my class. And that's not a function of how smart I was or anything. I just kind of knew how, how the system worked. I could mm. sort of prep the day before and be pretty good at taking test taking, but I couldn't get away with that in Harvard. Acclimating to Harvard from Mexico City University. Wait, back in, oh yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was, it was the first time I had really, I was faced with having to f do things differently and not just beating the system. Harvard had a lot of, um, people that were incredibly talented, but not just talented, they were incredibly hard workers. Mm. And, and it was, so it was very humbling. And it'll tell you a little bit of my psychology, some of my, I was so invested in feeling special that when I realized I wasn't going to be the most special uh, kid at Harvard, the smartest, then I figured I would go out and party with all the partiers that lived across the river and back bay so the boston sure. crowd and still go to harvard and get you know c pluses or b minuses at harvard so then the people that would see me partying until 2 a.m and up the next day at seven taking a test i'd be like whoa and you're getting a b minus if you only tried i'm sure you'd be the smartest <laughs> so it was it was a bit of me being so identified with being special mm. that i found just another way to sort of create a specialness so late, a lot of late nights there in the North End at all those great restaurants, the Italian restaurants, and uh, boy, I, you can get yeah. lost there in that city. It's, uh, oh, yeah. but then you go on. It's a fun city. You go on though, Emilio, and you, you, my goodness, I mean, you, 
you sell rights to a movie. You you're head you do hedge fund. You're an economist. You you um, you're so successful in all these areas, uh, and at this point, you decide to write this book, and you're donating all the proceeds to it. Uh, and it's it's a really 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 good book. The first chapter, of course, the mystery of you. The first chapter, the operating system. You know, I was bought right on. I'm in the tech industry, and I, I know you you are as well. It looks like everybody needs some patches in their operating system. I think that's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we all need some patches. And then at some point, we all need some disruption. Mm. Right? I think in the tech industry, we're so used to looking at these large industries that have been operating for so long, undisrupted. And it's not that they're doing things right. They've just been doing it for mm. so wrong, for so long that it feels like it's a big project to upend and do things differently. And I think we we often relate in that way to the way that we operate internally. I certainly did. And it's like, well, yeah, this isn't optimal, but it's just how it's done. And the idea of going in and doing some inner work just seems daunting. So I'll focus out there and disrupt this huge industry, but I, but I won't spend the time to look at the, the core misunderstandings that are running me moment to moment. And... Uh, and that that is that is the invitation really with the book is like how do we how do we bring a more curious approach to all the ways in which we navigate life and more importantly how do we live more empowered right because we we i a lot of the people that I'm around including myself for a long time we outsource our well-being to the world showing up one way mm. or another and when something turns out one way and it wasn't the way that we wanted it to be, we're really in a victim mode and very reactive to that. And, and that to me is just a, it's a disempowering way to live. And, and, and it creates a lot of the suffering that is unnecessary because we're in a constant push to life that is saying, no, I know better what should be happening. And when that doesn't happen, I'm going to resist. And then maybe if I resist enough, then things will change. But the most efficient change I've come about really is derived from a, from a place that feels a lot more grounded because then creativity comes online. When I am in a, in a no to whatever is happening, I'm pretty narrow and my capacity to be open and curious is, is quite limited. Hmm. So the book really is, is an intended, um, it's really just showcasing some of the tools and the stories that have been helpful for me and other people in navigating that inner journey from a mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual perspective. And really creating that model of like, you know, it is possible. It is possible to experience inner peace in the middle of sort of a crazy life that includes i have three teenagers right now and i'm as you mentioned I'm, I'm i'm involved with a bunch of things many many boards and run two family offices and a venture fund and so it's a lot of a lot of busyness and i'm not tossed around hmm. no. hmm. so it's it's really an invitation to say it is possible to to navigate life's twists and turns in a way that feels a lot more easeful and fun and that by a byproduct of that is that 
we tend to be a presence that brings greater um, joy into those that are around us. Suffering is optional. Not pain, but suffering is optional. Mm. This is your quote. Yeah. 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 It's a, it, thank you for reflecting it back. It, it, the distinction is that, you know, suffering is all the stories that we tell ourselves about what shouldn't or should mm. have happened. And if, if a deal, if I'll, I'll be sort of something more, if somebody, and the, one of the examples I give in the book is if somebody hurts my daughter, right, at school, I can have heartache. I can hurt for her. But that will be a lot less. It will be burdened by suffering if I tell stories of how the school was wrong or how this kid's parents should have done something about it or how all of this narrative that eventually creates a lot of dissonance mm. inside of me. And I can, I can, I used to think that I needed all this narrative and all these stories in order to take action, but I, I don't need all those stories, right? If somebody wrongs me in my business, I don't need to be in judgment of them in order to take appropriate action, even if it's legal action. And the difference between falling down and hurting or having a headache and feeling pain and then saying, well, I shouldn't have that headache. I am an idiot. Why did I drink so much last night? What did I do? All that other narrative, that's the suffering. Mm. And I'm trying to make a distinction of how much of that is unnecessary. And the thing is that a lot of us, I grew up Catholic and I associated learning with uh, pain mm. <laughs> one way or another. It's like there have to be very strong consequences or else I won't course correct. It's almost like the whole premise of confession, right? It's like 20, 20 uh, <laughs> prayers to so that you may be forgiven or this sort of self and And it still operates a lot in our, in our society. It's like if I don't judge myself heavily, I will repeat the same mistake. And that's not at all my experience. And in a similar fashion, we believe that if we don't judge someone else out there, they'll wrong us again. And we think that we need to hold on to that anger or that upset or that judgment in order to take care of ourselves. And I don't think so. I think that's, that's the suffering. I think of so many analogies, like the the one where, you know, you want revenge and what do they, what do they say? It's like drinking poison yourself and it doesn't affect them, right? You, you're, it's, it's really how you frame it. Yeah. yeah I think there was this beautiful quote of this and they attribute it to Buddha, but I think they attribute so many things to Buddha that who knows, but it's like holding a hot rock intending to throw it at your, at your enemy. It's like, you're getting burned. And I think we, we are all familiar with the justifications of the ego, right? Of why we can't forgive, of why we can't let go. And we may have really good reasons. And I think convincing someone to let go is 
really hard when they believe that if they let go, then they'll be wronged again, mm -hmm. or this person will never learn. Or, and my invitation is that we can both let go and take appropriate action. Yeah, you also mentioned like, com you know, combining learning with pain. I remember, you know, I played soccer all my life. And, you know, when I was a kid, if you did something wrong, you had to run, you know, run five laps. So then all of a sudden you start equating exercise and punishment. So when you get older, you don't want to do these things because you just visualize it. Oh, I had to do this when I was wrong. I don't want to do that. I, I wasn't wrong. You know, so, you know, these are the things that you learn as a child that you must break free from as you get into adulthood and try to, you know, strive for, you know, being in the moment and the spirituality and the things you, you're offering. Yeah, yeah, that's a great example. And and I think the opposite is also true, right? It's like, oh, go to the doctor and then I'll get you mm. a nice food. <laughs> so so we, we associate all these reward mechanisms, punishment and reward with, with all these behaviors. And uh and and I think I think it's innocent, you know, we do it as parents or as a society, but we I think it's that's the invitation is we can we start questioning the way we've been doing things. Like and and even it's tricky for me as a as a dad because when my kids do something right, I can't help sometimes but compliment them, right? And yet I know that by complimenting them, I am creating this dynamic where they are start performing whatever it is that I complimented to get the attention and the recognition. And then the next time they do it, and I've seen it when they were younger, I see how they change every time they do that very innocent, spontaneous thing that I celebrated. And the next time they're making a drawing or the next time they're like, trying to be perfect and if they mess up they get upset when they wouldn't get upset in the past now they're upset because they think that there's going to be a withholding of the appreciation mm. right? they're not going to get that ice cream yeah you call your three teenage uh, kids teachers and you have to tell the story of where you came to this epiphany where you this one child was rebellious and you know you were able you know and you were kind of fighting back too but you just kind of had this moment I'll do a terrible job, but please explain that story. It's wonderful. You're doing great, but it's, it, it is. And it's so common in a lot of dads that mm. I've spoken to where I think we, we grew up with a generation of fathers that was likely more authoritarian, right? right? Where, where there wasn't as much space for dialogue. It's like, no, no, it's, it's because I say so. Right? And, and I decided to raise kids that were, um, more in their own power, more capable of asking questions. And, you know, I kind of knew it was going to be harder that way, but, and I wouldn't change it, but I didn't know how hard it was going to be, especially back in those days when my kid would speak up or say no. When I said, you have to do this, no. And, and the example that you're referring to in the book is he would, this defiance would trigger me, where if, especially if, he, if I had the right justification, like he was hurting his sister and they were sort of, wrestling and he wouldn't listen to me i would go and physically hold him as a way to take mm. out rage like i would be abusive and just move him right and then he'd be like you you hurt me you hit me i was like no i didn't and uh, i was i was very invested in him sort of still seeing me as a good dad but what i was deep down saying is you don't know how good you mm. have it you if i had spoken back to my dad the way you're speaking to me 
it would have been the right. end of my world. And here I am allowing you to be outspoken and, and you're so disrespectful and that is not okay with me. So I was approaching this so harshly. And when I examined it, so it was so triggering to me that I had to slow down and say, okay, what's really, what's this about? It's not, I would say, well, he's hurting his sister, blah, blah, blah. But that was just the, the surface, right? What was really underneath for me was that at around his age, I would have loved to have a voice. I would have loved to be able to speak up. And yet my voice got pretty squashed. I was afraid to speak up. And somehow deep down I was saying, no, I didn't get to have a voice. So you don't get to have a voice. And that sounds terribly unconscious, but that's really what my sort of six-year-old was feeling. Like, no, 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 this is not okay. And when I was able to recognize and have this deep gratitude for the fact that I hadn't yet squashed him, I was like, oh, I have an opportunity to teach him how to be respectful and keep his voice and speak his truth. And it was incredible because the moment that I shifted that, I tested it out the next few times that he was defiant and I, I didn't react to the defiance with that same, oh, no, 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 you don't. But it was much more like, oh, let me, let me hear what you have to say. Let me understand what's going on. Let me create more space between the defiance and my reaction to it. And he just literally just stopped being mm. defiant and, and just fully stopped. And I, since it's been eight years plus, maybe nine, I've never once seen him be defiant hmm. with me when he was the most defiant kid. And it's almost like he was just pushing the right. button, you know, it's a perfect button pusher. And I think they've all been button pushers in different, in different lessons for me, as most close relationships are. You know, we talk about our parents. My father's an Italian immigrant, you know, and he came to you know, to New York when he was 18, didn't have anything, but I mean, he, he got his first pair of shoes when he was 12 years old, you know, so just poor farmers. So, you know, you could imagine, you know, when I was a kid and I wanted to go to the arcade and play Pac-Man, you know, they didn't have anything like, you know, so it's just, it's just so different. And of course, you know, discipline, which we'll certainly get to in a moment, but, uh, you know, just very, very different. And then when I, I had girls, so it was a little different, but I just always wonder if I had a boy and he was defiant like that, would I, would I act that way? You don't realize if I did that in front of my father, you know, where we are and it's good to reflect back and, uh, and hopefully learn from it. And it's a great story you have. Emilio, this, this, when I, I, I have not been able to stop thinking about this right here. You, you tell, you tell a story about how somebody posed you with a question and it, it's just, it's been flooring me ever since. And I, 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 I want to talk about it a little bit, but the, the question posed to you was, uh, you know, uh, what do I know for sure to such a degree that you would bet your life of a loved one on it? And you just start questioning everything in your world. And I don't have an answer. And what happens to, yeah. What happens to you when you contemplate right. that? Same thing. I Automatically, I went to science. I think, okay, gravity. And I, you know, things that are, yeah. you know, I don't believe there's, a, there's not a belief in science. It's science, you know, um, it's not a kind of a, but, uh, 
but still i can't i i can't it, it's amazing T- tell the circumstance in which you were posed with that and what you did yeah, I was. I don't remember where I was when I was posed with it, but I had all these ideas. And when I, when I first sat with it, I, I also started with with rational right. thinking. I started with yeah. with science, and and that was my like, okay, what are, what right. are facts? You know, let me just be indisputable. Ready. And I said like one plus That's one right. equals two, right? right. <laughs> and and then and then I, I I don't know if you've ever had a chance to be. Um, done any psychedelics or any, any kind of plant medicine or, or any kind of thing that alters alcohol. I know how much my mind can get altered in those states. Right. I know that if I was dreaming right now and I didn't know that I was dreaming, I could name many facts, including that gravity wasn't real. And, you know, and that would be my reality in that time. So, and then after sort of the scientific facts, I went into more sort of basic facts. I'm a human. I'm a man, but I, 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 it was, it took a while, but I, I could still pierce through all right. of those. You know, it's like, how do I, that's just fully, all of that is fully based on my memory. And I mean, I have, I have bad memory and I don't really know. Like if it's, it's almost like if, if we are some versions, if we consider the memory and the brain to be sort of almost like a CPU of some hmm. kind, right. And we have certain software and programming Am I willing to bet someone's life based on that program and what sort of that code says? Uh, it's still code, yes. right? And so it got really quiet. And and then I went into the, well, I am, and, and these more metaphysical qualities. But but what I came to and was, was really revelatory was that every story that I could tell required a memory, even if it was a brief memory and a projection of a future. It's almost like it required this, this time phenomenon as a linear uh, platform mm. and with a past, a present, and a future. It's like, so all of these stories were really in need of that as a canvas to be written on. And we know it's not so hard from a you know, scientific perspective to examine the validity of time as this linear dimension, right? It's, it's how our brains understand it. We understand past, present, and future, but we, that's, it's not mm-hmm. linear. Right? And, 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 and when we really sit with it, what is true in our experience in this moment, which is where I went to in, in that question, it's like, well, what is true right now? And, and to anybody listening, it's like, what is true right now for them if we're not going to a memory to reference and tell us what is true in our direct experience hmm. and then and then I, I started getting into my body because the body became this gateway into like okay well I feel my feet I feel the sort of the chair in my bum and I feel my chest and and that was that was much closer than the mind was to the present moment. Then I noticed, well, wait a second, these are still inputs that I'm registering through this computer. And they're inputs that are taking a fraction of a nanosecond to register, but that's still in the past. Mm. 
I'm still telling myself a story about what I'm feeling. So then it, it, it made me realize how futile this attempt to be present is. Because when we're told, okay, let's meditate or let's be present or we are trying to capture something that's incapturable. This, this movie is happening so quickly that by the time we're even taking notes or, or, or assimilating what the movie is, it's already happened. So I just, I just was, ended up being really silent for a long time. And what I love about my mind and what I love about what was different for me when I was in the spiritual path compared to a lot of the uh, sort of spiritual teachers was that my mind was operated very, or at least how I perceived the spiritual teachers, very rational. It's like, no, let me be, let me just, Mm. I'm not going to buy into any belief system, any metaphysical idea. Let me be very rational. And, And I could take the mind to the edge of that rationality kind of like what we just did now. And I could examine, examine, examine assumptions. And they get to a place where the mind just sort of makes way for something bigger, makes way for the space of not knowing. But I can only get there through exhausting the knowing. Mm. I can't jump to not knowing without having walked to that edge. Because then it's not my experience. And that's really what I invite people through the book and through my mentoring is like, discover for yourself what, what is real, what is true for you. Don't jump to new conclusions and don't but just question. And, and to that point, question the way that we, you are going about doing things. I also love the story. You talk about meditation and how you always found it kind of laborious. You go to these retreats and, okay, it's time to meditate now. And you kind of forced everything away. But then you kind of came to the, you came to this one point where it's just natural now. It's like you, you liken it to taking a walk. It's just, okay, I'm going to meditate. You know, this is, and I'm not quite there yet. Emilio, but I'm, I I feel that I'm close, but it's so liberating and freeing to be able to meditate freely like that. Hmm. Yeah. And it goes back to sort of this, this idea of trying to be present. Right. And, and when I would approach meditation, it it felt like I was getting ready to meditate and ready to Hmm. create a particular state. It's like, no, this is what meditation should look like. Meditation should look like a clear mind, no thoughts. I'll be still, and that will be a good meditation. And at the end of it, I will feel X, Y, or Z. And I think that's helpful. I think meditation as a means to settle our system is incredibly valuable. Uh, It's not something we're trained to do, to just be more settled, more grounded. But when I shifted meditation from something that would accomplish an outcome to just noticing what was true in the moment. Then, then this meditative state became more a curious place than one that needed to be producing mm. something. So I, 
it's really it's really the the shift from being protagonistic, which is most of our days, to just being in this curiosity. And and if we can sit in that curiosity of discovering things, even if what's what's arising our thoughts, right? And there's a difference between letting thoughts happen. There's an analogy of the sky and the clouds. It's like it's like you're seeing the clouds and you're not following the cloud, right? You're you're just seeing the cloud. A thought is just something that's passing by. If you find yourself sort of five minutes later, you're stuck in that same thought, and it's a good reminder to go come back to the moment. But when we can be in that place of curiosity, something starts shifting where our center of attention shifts from something very localized to something more non-local. Similarly to when we are in a what we would call a state of flow, right? When we are, you mentioned walking, when we're out and about and we're just in the moment. We're not trying to be in the moment. But somehow our control tower has taken a bit of a step back and it's been superseded more at the forefront by this just openness. And to me, that's meditation. I remember one of the first hurdles. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. The first hurdle, one of the first hurdles for me was just too many thoughts going through. Why am I thinking of that? And I was given the analogy of, you know, similar to the clouds in the skies that, you know, you're on the side of the road and you're just watching traffic go by and the traffic are your thoughts. Try to separate them from your body as you're, meditating and it, it, it seemed to help yeah yeah that's that's very helpful and and that's uh, i think what is what was valuable for me in those moments is that that didn't become a new uh, a new fixation mm. there's a difference for me in noticing the cars are just cars and being so attentive and focused on there being no following of those cars, but then that, that becomes a new car. Yeah. What is, so it's, Sorry. it's, uh, no, there was, a, there was a teacher that used to sort of say, it's, it's kind of like how you would hold a bird in your hand. Meditation, you hold this intention to be not caught in thinking like you would hold a bird. You don't squeeze that intention too hard, but you also have just enough to make sure that it's that mm. it's there. What is irrational discontent? Mm. I think it's the it's the a lot of us that have our lives figured out to some degree, we tend to or I've witnessed tend to not give permission to the part of us that feels unhappy. Mm. Say, how can I be unhappy when I have got all of this and so on? So here or over there has less. And it was, it gave me, it made me feel very guilty to, to touch upon that discontent. It's like, who, who am I to, to complain? And 
I think there is something to be said about not focusing on what's wrong and gratitude because well, our minds are trained to focus on what's wrong. But I think there's also the kind of discontent that is pulling us outside of our comfort zones mm. into exploring a different place. Right? It's the and it's the discontent that comes about. Many people will sort of refer to it as a midlife crisis. Right? It's like they need something else, and 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 this. I think the, the stereotypical approach to that is I'll, I'll get the fancy car or I'll get the fancy, the, the, the young partner or whatever it is. But I think those are opportunities when we, the realization that what we thought would give us satisfaction doesn't. That realization can make space for, for a whole, for, for one of those upgrades of the operating system. If we don't, plug back in right into our software of, okay, let me get something mm. else that will feel exciting. Yeah. It, uh, you know, as you say this, as I take deep breaths and, uh, it relaxes and, um, another concept you, you talk about is unnecessary roughness. Yeah. That's, that's just what we do to mm. ourselves and to each other. There's a lot of, um, you know, what would it be like if we related to all of our issues as opportunities for growth? Mm -hmm. What would it be like if instead of judging ourselves so roughly, we would approach the parts of us that are acting out in the same way that we would approach a crying baby? in a room because many times the parts of ourselves that are acting out are just looking for attention and the way that we relate to them that we've learned to relate to them is by ignoring them by judging them which is the exact opposite that a that a little kid looking for attention uh, you know that, that, that what they're actually wanting and so i think if we if we shift our relationship to everything we judge inside of ourselves from one of antagonism to one of greater compassion, then it's a lot easier to understand what those parts have to mm -hmm. say and to upgrade them. Because they're usually, they're usually younger parts that never received the, you know, just the compassion or the love that they were looking for at those early ages. And now they, you know, they just act out. Hmm. Yeah. You talk a lot on the podcast about um, discipline. You know, I lost a lot of weight. Uh, I started my business back in the 90s and uh, I wasn't paying attention to myself. Didn't, you know, I didn't treat myself very well. I was eating too much. I gained a lot of weight. Doctor said, if you don't, uh, Lose this weight, Joe. You're going to not see your daughter graduate. Uh, by the way, she just graduated from Cal State in your Los Angeles uh, backyard there. Wow, yeah, right. Congratulations. And, um, That's amazing. 
so I lost it. I lost in about a year, year and a half. I lost about 130 pounds. People ask me, you know, how did you lose weight? Like it's some quick little secret. Everybody wants kind of a quick fix. And I, I, my answer is always discipline. I, I wonder how discipline plays a role in your life as a, let's start as a child in Mexico with, you know, with your surroundings that we talked about, the, the discipline, did it have a negative kind of connotation with a kind of an authorita authoritarian father? It it did. I think when I was when I was, and when I think back at those times, discipline felt like a top down thing. Mm. I I was always told what I needed to be doing, and so discipline was associated with with not things that I wanted to be doing, mm. and and I. I would see discipline and it would seem so hard. I would see people doing amazing things and then, but committing so much time to it that I didn't know where to start mm. and that I couldn't see myself as a disciplined person. It just seemed so far from who hmm. I was. And so I became someone that was almost like always looking for shortcuts. And it it was sort of reflected in the study the day before the test to the in business, always be looking for the home run. Um, because I truly <laughs> didn't think that I could be disciplined enough to go through with, because I never had a model for doing it. And the, and the reality is that I had models for doing it, but it's not, it was always, it felt so big that I didn't know where to start. And I heard, a, I heard a definition of discipline maybe 15 years ago, which was incredible. It, it, that's really stayed with me, which was discipline is remembering what's important. Mm. And that got me, right? And then I started noticing all the ways in which I was already disciplined. So I think any, any time that I, I start something, I, I like to pay attention to the ways that it's already happening, whether it's meditation, presence. It's like, how am I present mm. already? I suppose before I start looking for being present or how am I happy already? And, and in this, how, where am I disciplined? And I was, I, I was able to notice all the ways in which I was already disciplined. And now I'm, I'm incredibly I have a very, very strong will to sort of accomplish things and do things. And I, and I don't know if this is your experience at all, but when something is important, it stops becoming something I need to remind myself about. Hmm. It just becomes a, a natural, eventually habitual, but a natural thing that, that I move towards. And as, as, Sorry. Yeah, I'm curious how it was for you as a parent, but as a yeah. parent, then it's it's so challenging, right? Because then as I'm saying this, it's like how do I how do I do top down to my kids currently? Mm. And 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 how can I encourage them to remember what's important for themselves as opposed to being the one that's reminding them 
of what should be important. And how about in your, like you said, you've had a couple of family businesses, you, you do, uh, your, your hands are in so many areas. I wonder with the clients you work with, with the people you mentor, is discipline a common theme? Yeah, I don't, I don't really, um, a lot of the people that I mentor, it's just something I, I do. It's, a, it's an offering. It's not, they're not really clients. Mm -hmm. So we, we can have very candid conversations and, and I call them out when they say something is important mm -hmm. and they're not showing up for it. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes what I've discovered, whether it's with mentors or, or people that are, you know, colleagues, employees or otherwise, there's often some sabotaging aspect hmm. at play. And what I've discovered often, and some of them are really strange and hidden and irrational, but I'll give you an example. There's, there's uh, someone in particular I'm thinking of that really wanted to be successful, monetarily speaking. And he was showing up, but then when something would, there'd be an opportunity to grow, he would back hmm. down. And when there was something that uh, could really, it's almost like he I would see it, how he would create circumstances that would ultimately handicap his progress. Hmm. And when we slowed it down, we realized that when he was younger, his dad started becoming successful and not sh shortly thereafter, they moved to a bigger house. They had all these other things. Their uh, parents, his parents got divorced. Hmm. And that was very difficult for him. And some part of him associated hmm. this success with uh, pain. And as long as that was operating, hmm. this part of him that was invested in wow. keeping him at a certain rate was still going to show up. So I w I've witnessed a lot of competing intentions at play hmm. in what drives people and where people want to go somewhere. Because usually we're very powerful, right? We, we, we can harness a lot of energy. And if we commit to something we've, and we've got the capacity and resources, it's quite likely we'll accomplish it. And most of the time, the reason we don't accomplish it is because some part of us is not fully on board. What an amazing epiphany this uh, gentleman had to, to, you know, draw that line there with, uh, with uh, financial success and, um, you know, pain. And uh, once discovered how uh, hopefully he can take a hold of that and, and redirect and make sure, you know, it doesn't happen. That's, it's, it's an amazing story. And, unfortunately, I think a lot of people just don't get to reach those epiphanies. It goes back to what we were sharing earlier, right? If we, if we can shift the relationship, because normally the relationship with the saboteur within mm. us, even if we're aware of a saboteur, is antagonistic. Mm. It's like, you shouldn't be here. We judge ourselves. We're, we go on a diet and some part of us goes and, and sort of has the big dessert. And then we judge ourselves for having this big dessert. 
And if instead of judging ourselves, we would get curious with that part of us that made that decision, with that part of us that is invested in us not losing weight. And we can do it through sheer force and discipline. And I think that is important. And I, I, I've seen how much less effort, that's even the right way of saying it, it takes when we can address some of the underlying mechanisms at play. Mm. And I've seen it around diet. I don't know if this was your experience at all, but there was a similar dynamic with someone that associated, was afraid of being seen. And, and they were keeping themselves from being their lean image of who they perceived as who they wanted to be as beautiful. They, I think they were, she was beautiful independently, but, but she perceived herself as, as only being beautiful if she, if she lost a certain amount of weight, mm-hmm. but she, uh, I'm, I'm not giving any specifics, but she had experienced uh, physical abuse. All right, right. So, so if some part of her also believed that if she was attractive, that was dangerous. Uh, it would invite that. It would invite that. So that part of her was very invested in keeping her safe. And the way that it was doing it was, no, well, let's, let's not stick to these diets. Mm-hmm. So again, we can only discover and I think have those epiphanies, as you call them, if we change those, um, that habitual way of judging ourselves. Mm-hmm. And if we start getting curious, oh, let me understand what's happening here. It takes a lot of courage because then usually it involves sort of places that are quite vulnerable. You know, it, it, it's so amazing how these kind of triggers we talk about that we don't know are there. I, I remember I was in a peer group for a while and there's a there's an author that, you know, has a bunch of business books and... Um, and for the longest time, whenever somebody brought this author up in some of their sayings, I would just rebel against it. I'd be, well, you know, and then I, I would really be obstinate to this. And my peers started asking me why. And I said, oh, I just don't believe it. And then I remember having, I don't know, maybe a couple of drinks, Emilio, but I remember a, another friend of mine actually went on a date with this person and he wasn't very nice at all. I completely forgot that years before. And so then I just built up this kind of wall, completely forgot about it and just rejected everything he said. And it wasn't because of that. I didn't think it was, it was because of that. It's just, I just painted this person in that color and it's just absolutely amazing. Uh, how, how things like that really drive and create us, you know, like you say, self-saboteur fascinating. That's a great story. And, and, and it makes sense, right, that some part of us would take some data point and categorize it somewhere where it said, this is, this is, there's something wrong right. here. And we forget what that data point was. It could be totally irrelevant to the current circumstance, but we're still holding on to that belief. And I think when we're younger, we create a lot of those data points. We make a lot of conclusions mm. that go unquestioned for a very long time. Right. You know, it took... However, it took you however long to realize, wait a second, I don't, I'm responding like this because of this over here. And, and to me, some of this inner exploration is like, wow, I'm reacting like this because 
something that happened way back way and I created this association and yeah, maybe I was incapable of taking care of myself mm -hmm. then and it served to be more guarded but or to judge them or to whatever it is, but it's it's a different circumstance right now. Yeah, and then there's these learned behaviors that we have. I, I remember this one story where a friend of mine told me that whenever their mother made like a pot roast, she'd always kind of cut off the ends. And I remember questioning her, why did it cut off the ends? And she says, I, I don't know, and always does. So she went and she asked her mother, and her mother said, well, that's the way your grandmother did it. And she went and asked her grandmother, and her grandmother said, well, that's the way my mother did it. And, you know, she went back there, and she ended up asking uncles and aunts and everything, and you know, years later, she found out that whoever originated this, the pan was so small that she had to cut the edges off. Otherwise, it wouldn't fit in the pan. So they just behavior just kept continuing through these generations. Unquestioned. Oh, man. It's incredible. It's incredible how much of that we're carrying. Yes. So yeah. much. We're cutting ends everywhere. We really are. With really big, with really big pans, <laughs> huge pans and huge ovens. You know, we're talking many generations. I bet you it was a small oven and small pans, and that well, we cut off the edges. That's just what we do, and you know, I, and why it's uh, uh, those epiphanies really. I don't know if they stopped doing it. By the way, I should I still in touch with her. I should ask her if when that event, you know, that epiphany arose, did it did that did that you know kind of tradition stop? I'm not sure. Um, I love that. I love that you say that because I, I wrote a story in the book about sort of the, the, the turkey cutting a turkey yes. in half. And, and I didn't know that person. And I imagine that person that told me that was probably some version of your friend's right. story that, <laughs> that adapted it. So, it, it, but yeah, there are so many, so many things that I've discovered. I, I'm, I'm, I'm having three teenagers right now, for example, I'm the, whole thing about inappropriateness mm. uh, or curfews or what's okay and what's mm. not okay. So much of that was learned. And, and now I'm having this moment of like, why, why is this the way that it is? Is, is it really still my reality? Like, do they still need to be home by this time or not? Or, and, you know, I'm doing it live real time, which is, uh, which is obviously challenging with, with three very empowered teenagers, but it's, yeah, yeah, it's the life I choose. Parenthood is, is, you know, you, you call your, your, your children lovingly teachers, which is true. We're constantly learning. I, you know, when my oldest was born, I, I remember leaving the hospital and, looking at all these doctors and nurses saying, are you people crazy? You're letting me take this child home. I don't know what I'm doing. This child just showed up. You can't let me, you know, and I'm driving 35 miles an hour on the highway, you know, all in the right. I'm yelling at people's, you know, going the speed limit. And it's like, who am I? What's happening here? You know, we get launched into this parenthood and we're trying the best we can. Yeah, it's. A, I took I took my firstborn back to the hospital that Did same you night. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and the nurses who had been like my family, they're like, "No, sorry, we That's can't. Right. We can't do anything." I'm like, what do you mean? We're family. They're like, no liability. We can't That's even right. tell you what to do. Like, liability no. came in. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely amazing. Emilio um, Diaz Baruso, what motivates you? 
my heart. Mm. Um, yeah, I feel I care a lot. I care a lot about people, and uh, and I find myself acting in service to that. And I, I, sometimes I need to, you know, because you talk a lot about discipline. Sometimes I need to outsource the machine mm. because my heart tends to respond very much to the moment. So when I'm when I'm in front of something, when I'm I'm, I'm there. But if I have an idea of what would be valuable, homelessness is a cause that's close to my heart. Unless I I hire a group of people to go and execute it it'll mm. never happen because because my heart will get called somewhere else in the next moment um, so i've learned that about myself but i've gotten very clear with what my mission in life is and it's a little corny but it works for me and it's to leave a wake of love hmm. and then that's not dependent on anything happening or not happening, but just really how I'm showing up at any given moment. The conjures such wonderful imagery, a wake of love. I'm sure some artists have, have captured that somehow. Uh, but all of a sudden I start visioning things and uh, that's wonderful. How do you define success? I was just having this conversation with my kids recently. As the story we tell ourselves at any given moment. Hmm. I am I am as successful as the narrative that I'm carrying around in my head. And and how kind that narrative is to myself and to others because I've, I've done very large business deals that were perceived as successful and it's been as impactful or even less impactful sometimes than the smallest of acts mm. of like stopping in the street and helping someone out or being able to listen to someone or give someone a hug that just needed something in that moment. So it, it, it really becomes a very dynamic answer that is based on, on, a, on a particular narrative I'm carrying at that moment. The outside may look identical and if I'm telling myself one story versus another, I can be successful or unsuccessful. It certainly is a dynamic answer because you, you know, may have a different answer tomorrow. You may have, you know, it, I think both of those questions, you know, uh, and I've heard you in interviews get asked that question, you know, and, um, and there's no right or wrong answer. Those are my favorite kind of exams in school. Yeah. The ones with the, no right or wrong answers. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> totally. 
you can justify it and you can make your case. No, 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 wait, let me, let me show you how I see it. And, and you know, what is, what is also interesting is that when I, when it is a dynamic answer, when it's not a fixed answer, then when I mess up, success is course correcting. Mm. Success is learning from that mess up. Success is taking responsibility, apologizing if I have to. Yeah. As opposed to the success that I used to define before, which was almost like a perfected, idealized story, right? That um, I'm not going to mess up. I'm never going to lose my cool. Mm. I'm always going to be involved with great deals. I'm going to have eggs in the bank. I'm I like what you just said about, you know, apologizing when necessary. I mean, all too often in this society, you know, we, you know, just having a clear conversation like we are, where we're exchanging ideas and, and laughs and, um, you know, perhaps epiphanies. And sometimes people just don't like to apologize when it's just a simple act it only takes a moment and um, it could be so helpful and, and, and rewarding and course correcting, like you mentioned as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it is very powerful. And, and I think it gives permission to people to take responsibility for mm. their part. I certainly know that when I'm righteous and I am in this mode of closeness and someone takes responsibility and apologizes, I drop my right. weapons, right? I lower my armor and, I'm, and I look, I have greater space inside of myself to look at, oh, how did I show up? Before I was solely focused on the other. Absolute pleasure talking to you today, Emilio. When your team reached out, I got so excited and uh, I, I was really looking forward to this. I'm so glad it happened. Your book, The Mystery of You, I encourage people to get it. It's available on Amazon. Um, if anybody else wants to get in touch with you, I, perhaps that's the best way to do it. Yeah, there's, there's a website called Emilio's book. They can, they can go there and, uh, and just put their email and we can, can be in contact. And I just want to really acknowledge you for, for just what you do and how you show up. Thank you for, for doing this. Well, I appreciate that. Um, Here's my problem, Emilio. I have more questions than I have answers, you know, and uh, I think that's just the way I'll continue living. Emilio's book is E-M-I-L-I-O-S, correct? Book.com. Great website. You put up blogs there regularly. You're an excellent writer um, and uh, obviously writing the book. And uh, I, you've got, you're on Instagram, you're on LinkedIn, you're on Twitter. I'll put all that up. Lots of podcast uh, locations. I'll also put the... Uh, link to the book at Amazon as well. Emilio, thank you so much for your time. Uh, next time I'm in Los Angeles, I will contact you and we'll have a cup of coffee and continue to uh, exchange kindness and great ideas. That sounds amazing. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. You be well. Bye now. Thank you for listening and or viewing Joey Pinn's Discipline Conversations. Please share this episode with one or two of your friends who you think may benefit from the episode. Our website, www.joeypins.com. There you find lots of resources and you could join our mailing list. Please follow us on all our social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. 
podcast information. The video version of our podcast is on YouTube. Please subscribe. Audio is on all major podcasting platforms. Please follow them. And if you like it, please consider giving five-star rating. Would really appreciate that. Would you like to financially support the podcast? You can go to our Patreon site. Consider five, ten, or twenty dollars a month. There's all kind of plans that we have there. There's like a one-time payment. What is this podcast episode worth to you? Twenty-five dollars, fifty dollars, hundred dollars, five hundred dollars, thousand dollars, five thousand dollars. You be the judge. You can go to our PayPal account to do that as well. Thank you again for listening or watching Joey Pin's Discipline Conversation.